Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment and thank you for tuning into our church's podcast. This week's sermon is from our series Alpha and Omega. To learn more information about Sturkey Hills, you can find us at sturkey.church. Oh, and don't forget to hit subscribe to our podcast so that you can always stay up to date with our latest messages. We're so thankful for all that God has been doing in the life of our church and the part that you play in it. Thank you for listening and have a blessed day. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. Last week we talked about the storm shelter, that God's church, the bride of Christ, is the storm shelter in this world that we live in. And we talked about the fact that there is an eschatological end time storm brewing. It is coming and it will happen. And so the church is the place where we find refuge in our daily walk, in our daily life, but also when Jesus returns, we'll be covered because we'll be under grace and peace, which is what we saw last week. Well, today we're going to look at three keys to, uh, to understanding or three keys to unveiling, unlocking, or navigating through the book of the Revelation. And to get there, we have to kind of lay the groundwork and look at it contextually. And so I want you to begin with me in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. It says, I, John, your brother, and the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus. Now, I just want to tell you, this is written. Now, keep in mind, God wanted to reveal the end times. God wanted to reveal, uh, to reveal or unveil. That's what Revelation Apocalypso means. He wants to unveil the future. He gave it to Jesus as a gift for his sacrifice. He gave it initially, chapter 1, through an angel to John the Revelator, who is the same apostle who wrote uh, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now he gets the revelation. And so he's going to give it to an angel, and to this point an angel has been speaking. Today it'll change gears and Jesus will start speaking directly. Now what he says, John says, I am your brother. I'm born again. I'm a child of God. I'm under grace. Uh, if you if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, I am with you. Now, he tells the early church, he says, I'm with you in this word that nobody wants to talk about, persecution. He says, I'm with you in persecution, and I'm part of the kingdom, and I persevere or I endure. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you ever really feel like as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, that you feel a little bit persecuted, treated a little bit differently than the rest of the world? Do you ever feel persecuted just a little bit? Okay, a few, okay? Well, I just want to tell you, you don't. You don't feel persecuted. That's a relative term. Oh, sure, sometimes we have, feel like people look at us a little different, treat us a little different, expect some kind of holy life a little different than they do everybody else because we are Christians, we're followers of Jesus, but we have no idea what persecution is. In fact, in the early church, it really, really was persecuted. So I just want to tell you, Biblically, and I'll show you in just a minute, as Christians, we 
can expect persecution. Now, we live in a world where you can turn on your TV and you can find some televangelist, you can find some church preaching some gospel foreign to the one found in the Bible that would say when you give your life to Jesus, your life is going to be perfect. You're going to make more money than you ever made. Your wife and your relationship between your wife and your husband is going to be better than it all the time. It's going to be perfect. Your children, your teenagers are going to act right all the time. Your two-year-old is going to stop pooping in their diaper. I mean, it's just everything's looking rosy because I gave my life to Christ. And let me just tell you, that's a lie. That's a lie. Now, don't get me wrong. Your marriage will be better. Your children will be better. Your two-year-old will be better, but it won't be perfect because the Bible says you will have persecution, okay? So it's not supposed to be perfect, and if your life is rosy all the time, listen to me, it's because you are passive in your faith and you are not pushing back into the territory of the enemy. Amen? Amen, Brother Joel. That's right. I thought I'd throw that in. Now, here's the thing. He finds himself on this stony, volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. Now, here's what he says. He says, I have been persecuted with you, church. Early church, I'm right there with you in the persecution. He says, but I have endured. Now, I think this is kind of funny because he has endured. He's alive. They tried to boil him to death, and he didn't die. Now they put him on this rocky island in the middle of the sea, and he says, yeah, we've persevered. He's on a rocky island all by himself, okay? And he still considers that perseverance. See, that's what happens when you have an up-close-and-personal, day-to-day walk with the resurrected Jesus Christ. It changes the way you look at your circumstances. It changes the way you look at your personal pity party. And all of a sudden, you realize, yeah, woe is me, but God is better. I'm with him, so I will endure. I will persevere. Now, he's writing about persecution in the early church. And I want you to know what that looked like. See, he's writing this about 95 AD. He's writing this about 60 years after Jesus ascended. So John, who started out a young guy as, an, as a disciple and an apostle, now he's an old dude. He's in his 80s, and he finds himself on this island. Now, I want you to know what persecution looked like in the early church. Um, Rome had a new emperor, uh, a Caesar, and his name was Domitian. Domitian is the son of Vespasian. He's the brother of Titus. Now, those leaders were rough and raw, but they weren't out to get the church. Domitian rose to power, and he was bloodthirsty. He was worship-hungry. He is the first emperor of Rome to mandate or require that everybody refer to him as our Lord and our God. He erected statues and required that people bow and worship his statue as their God. Now, there's a problem with the church. It's obvious why he didn't like the church, because Domitian was not their resurrected king. Domitian was not their savior. Domitian was not their God. Jesus was. And so all of a sudden, he's like, we've got, we've got split loyalty, so I'm going to annihilate the church so he began this process of stomping out the church. Now, just so you'll know what it looked like in the early church, John the Baptist, we remember him. The forerunner of Jesus, man, he was rock solid, he was cool. You know what happened to him? Chopped his head off, put it on a platter, and brought it to someone for a birthday gift. That's the world the early church was birthed 
in. Let's move forward a little bit. Not only John the Baptist, Stephen. Stephen was stoned for his faith at the hands of Saul, who was persecuting the church. He said, I'll hold your jacket. Rock him. The Bible says Stephen looked and he said, I see into heaven, but they stoned him for his faith. James, the half-brother of Jesus, chopped his head off. Polycarp was the pastor at Smyrna. Historians say that they tried to get the pastor of Smyrna, Polycarp, to recant his faith, to say, okay, 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 I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to proclaim the the gospel. I'm not going to talk about Jesus. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to pastor this church. And he said, he's been faithful to me. Why would I stop being faithful to him? And they said, we'll feed you to the lions. He said, well, get them ready. They said, well, you don't like that? We're going to burn you at the stake. He says, start the fire. You see, until you understand who Jesus is, that he is everything now and forevermore, until you get to a place where you don't really care what happens to you in this life, as long as God is glorified with your life and through your life, you really won't ever live life. The Bible, excuse me, historians say, so finally Polycarp said, I am not recanting my faith. He's been faithful. I'm going to be faithful. Get the lions out. Burn me at the stake. I don't care. I got a resurrected Jesus waiting for me on the other side. They took his body. They strapped it to a pole. They built a fire underneath it. They ignited his body, and he sang. Historians say that the arena smelled like perfume from his burning flesh. That's not what burning flesh normally smells like. But when the resurrected Jesus is that real in your life, it changes every fiber of your being. Ignatius was the pastor of Antioch. They took him, they fed him to the lines. Listen, they began to use as entertainment the massacre of Christians for the, to, to light the road to the Colosseum, they would impale Christians' bodies to post and ignite them. Their burning bodies would light the way to the Colosseum. That is persecution. And it's in that that this John says, I'm with you in the persecution. I'm with you in the hard time. But I, just like you, will endure. Now, the beauty of this is he's by himself on a stony island, and he still considers that to be success. He still says, you know what? I've persevered. He's on a rock island by himself, and he says, it's okay. I still have Jesus with me. Now, he's on this island, and it says in verse 10 now, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, When I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet, he says, I was in the spirit. Now, there's a whole lot of ideas and thoughts and philosophies about what this means. You know, I was slain in the spirit. I was full of the spirit. I was doing this. I was doing that. No, 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 no. This is a supernatural occurrence where the spirit of God captured his being. It is something that is beyond any description. You see, there's people sometimes who say, oh, I had this spiritual event with God and he revealed this stuff and it never really looks like this. I want to tell you something. If the spirit of God catches you away and takes you to a different place, you'll never be the same. And what he shows you will be used to edify and lift up and encourage the church. And that's what happens. 
Now he says, I was in the spirit, he says, on the Lord's day. Now let's unpack this a little bit because there's two schools of thought. There's the day of the Lord and there's the Lord's day. The day of the Lord is when Jesus returns and when he sets up his millennial reign on this earth. That is the day of the Lord. The Lord's day, on the other hand, is the day of the resurrection. The church worship, worships Jesus, we do, on the Lord's day, which is Sunday. The Shabbat, the Sabbath, is Saturday. Uh, the Jews worshiped on Saturday. Some denominations still worship on Saturday. The early church, and through history, the church worshiped on Sunday, the day of uh, the Lord's day, the Lord's day. So, it, so I believe on Sunday, he was in the spirit. Now you say, what's, that? What's, the, what's, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. We live in a world where I will call it Christian convenience, where God is a convenience. I will be where I'm supposed to be on the Lord's day if there's not something else to interfere. And I believe God honors our faithfulness to the Lord's day. I believe God not only honors it in word, he honors it in action. I believe that here's a guy, John the Revelator, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus, that here he is. He had every reason to throw him a little pitiful personal pity party and say, God, you know, here I am on this island and it's the Lord's day. It's, I just don't feel like doing church today, man. I just don't feel like doing it. I mean, I got to look at this rocky island. It's barren and desolate. I'm separated from the church that I pastored. I'm separated from the people that I loved. I'm separated from the koinonia, the fellowship of the church. I don't have a worship guide. I don't have any music. I can't have church, but the Bible says... He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Here's what happens when you understand Jesus and what he's done for you. Every day becomes the Lord's day. Man, it's Sunday, it's yours. It's Monday, it's yours. It's Tuesday through Saturday. I'm, you, it's your day every day. Apart from you, I don't even have a day. So let's call this your day. Now that's what he's doing. Now God honors it, here's what he does. He says, man, I see you down there on a little rocky island. I see you all by yourself. I see you lonely. I see you persecuted. I'm going to show you something special. I just want to tell you something. There's a whole lot of people that miss out on what God wants them to see and experience because the Lord's day plays second fiddle to a whole lot of other stuff in this world. Amen, Brother Joel. It's the truth. You don't have to tell me it's the truth. I know it's the truth, and you do too. Let's move on. Now, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, this is about 60 years, okay? So I'm, I, before we see what's getting ready to happen, I want you to understand, 60 years approximately has passed since John saw Jesus. John saw Jesus the last time. He had nail scars in his hands and feet, a puncture wound in his side, and John saw him ascend into heaven. That's the last time he saw it, okay? 60 years have passed, a long time. He's going to get to see him again. Now, the, the, uh, he says in verse 11 now, he says, okay, I got your attention. He says, I want you to write a book, and I want you to write in it what you see. And I want you to send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, 
We talked about last week that throughout Revelation, there's a lot of symbology, a lot of numerology. There's a lot of numbers that mean a lot of things. Seven always means complete and perfect. It's why God rested on the seventh day. It's been around since the beginning. So we, we talked about last week, there's seven churches. They are literal churches. If you go to Turkey today, okay, you would, you would be in what's called in Bible times Asia Minor. And there were real churches in modern-day Turkey that went along the coast of Asia Minor or Turkey. And so what's going to happen is he's going to give a letter called the Revelation, and he's going to distribute it, the whole scroll, to each church. On his way, here's the first one. He keeps traveling up the coast. Here's the second one, until all seven churches have received this letter. Now, to understand what he's getting ready to unfurl, I believe there's three keys to get us ready, three tools, three keys to unlock our ability to understand the book of the Revelation. The first one I will call an astonishing reminder, an astonishing reminder. You remember in the first message of this book, we talked about the fact that the whole book, Genesis to Revelation, the big book, 66 little books, and the book of Revelation, the central Character. The central theme is Jesus Christ. It's not the beast. It's not suffering. It's not persecution. It's not a government. It's not the Antichrist. It's not this or that. It is Jesus. And if you read it and you miss it, read it again because you weren't looking. Because he is the central theme. Now, to have an astonishing reminder, let's look and see what John gets to see. He says in verse 12 now, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he says, I turn to see whose voice this was speaking to me. And when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of these lampstands was one like a son of man. One like a son of man. Now, why would he say that? Okay, because this ain't like the one I saw before. 60 years have passed, and this son of man doesn't look just like the last son of man I saw. Okay, now this expression, son of man, occurs 83 times in the New Testament, uh, 85 times in the New Testament. 83 of those times, it is Jesus referring to himself. It is the number one descriptive way he refers to himself, and that is son of man. Now, why, was John, why would John say he's one like the son of man? Well, because he doesn't look like the one before. Now, I just want to pause. I want to digress just a little bit, okay? What does Jesus look like? We, we got sculptures of all the... I got a sculpture, man. You can go to Washington. You can see what Abraham looked like. Got a sculpture of him. You can see what George Washington looked like, okay? You can look up... You can go Google it, and you'll find images, paintings of Caesar, Nero, Domitian, all the emperors. You, you can look back in history and see what people look like, Okay? We don't know what Jesus looked like. I can tell you what he don't look like. He does not look like the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavian Jesus like you see sometimes. That ain't him. He was a Jew. The Old Testament says he had raven black hair. We know what color his hair was. The Old Testament says he's not much to look at. We can guess he had olive-colored skin. He had black hair. Uh, he, he was a Jewish guy, Okay. But there's no sculpture, there's no image that he left behind. Why? Jesus knew that we're not to worship an idol or an image. 
we can go right into his presence and worship him. This is good news. You don't have to go through some system. You don't have to go through some hierarchical system to get to Jesus. You, if you're born again, you go straight in to the presence of God through Jesus the Son. And so we don't have that. Now, he's going to say, okay, I'm going to tell you what I saw. Okay? Now, before we look at this, I want you to know sometimes when you get really startled and the adrenaline starts pumping, you don't even have words to describe what it is you're trying to describe. Have you ever had that happen, anybody? I'm going to give you one just so you'll know this is the best he can do in the moment. Okay? About two years ago, we had this terrible problem of people coming up into our grassy field and doing donuts out there, just plowing up our yard. And I'm weird. I'm just a yard guy. And, and, and Gene takes care of her yard. It always looks like a golf course. It's beautiful. I don't want anybody driving around doing donuts in my yard, okay? Now, if they want to do donuts in the parking lot, I don't really care. That's just tearing up their tires. Stupid, okay? But don't tear up my yard. Okay, I get a little weird about that. So they just plowed it up one Saturday night. I came in, mud all over the roads. It's just all plowed up. I said, Jesus, where were you at on this one? Okay, we had surveillance cameras. Can't see a tag. All you can see is a vehicle. I knew it was a, a Nissan Frontier. Well, they got away. And then on Monday, about 3.30, you know, they always say they return to the scene of the crime. All right, on Monday, I walk out to my car and I see a maroon Frontier Nissan sitting over here in the yard. I said, oh, no, you didn't. I jumped in my massive Mini Cooper. I'm going to take him by storm, all right? I jumped in the Mini Cooper. I took off. He saw me coming. Man, he took off down the road. What I'm doing, I don't know. What am I doing? I'm going to run him. I don't know what I'm going to do when I catch him. I, I don't know. All I know is it's just adrenaline's flowing, man. I'm nuts. I chase him. He goes into a subdivision that I know is a dead end. I pull the car sideways in the middle of the road. I called Daryl. I called Daryl, who's a police officer. He's one of our security. I said, Daryl, I got him. He said, you got him? I said, I got the guy. The guy tore up the yard. I got him. Where you got him? He's in a subdivision. Got him hemmed up. Okay. Sin I felt like Barney Fife. I got him a bullet, you know, and I'm talking to Daryl and I said, I said, wait a minute. He's coming back down. He's, he's almost here. No, no, no kidding. Daryl said, walk up to him, punch him right in the face. I said, I'm the pastor, Daryl. I just, I'm just worried about my yard. I don't want to kill him. And then I saw him. He had a head as big as a watermelon. He was all swole up in that knee. I wasn't going to punch him and he killed me. Okay. I was going to present the gospel or something. I don't know. You know, I just wanted to tell him to stop messing up my yard. He's, I asked him his name. He took off like a flash. He went around me. As soon as he went around me, I still had the police officer on the phone. He said, what's his tag? I said, 1GX069. 1GX069, Blunt County or whatever it was, you know. He said, okay, we got him. We got him. We got him. He called me back in about 30 minutes. He said, that ain't even a real tag. <laughs> when the adrenaline starts flying, when you're in the heat of the moment, you're a little bit scared about what's going on, you can't even, you don't even have words and letters and numbers that will describe what it is you're seeing, okay? Now, we ended up catching him. It's a cool story, catching him and his two friends, okay? But here's the point. John is this guy. He, he's here where all of a sudden he's by himself on the Lord's day in the spirit and the trumpet blows and he turns to see who it is that's going to be speaking to him and this is the best he's got. Now, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It tells us everything we know, but I just want to tell you, listen to me. There's not enough words in the dictionary 
to describe the resurrected king of kings, the Lord of lords, and the master of the universe. So this is what he says. He says in verse, uh, uh, verse 13, he says, he was dressed in this robe that ex- extended down to his feet, and he wore a wide golden belt around his chest. Now, we know that this represents dignity and authority and kingship. It's eternal, it's glorious, and it's truthful. It, uh, it appoints the reality that this is the eternal one who stands behind him. Now he goes on in verse 14 and he said in his, his head, man, it was his, his hair, they were white as wool, even as white as snow, which we all know, we, we, commentators all agree that this represents purity and the elevation and nobility of his thoughts. But, but he's kind of like the son of man because when he was here before, he didn't, he didn't look like that. And then it goes on and it says in his eyes, man, They were like a fiery flame. When he looked into his eyes, he just saw the flames in his eyes. How do you even describe that? That that doesn't look like the tender-eyed Jesus, man, the compassionate, uh, humble one that was here yet just 60 years ago. The fiery flame represents the omniscience of all things. His uh, ability to search and reveal. His infallible gauge penetrating to the very depth of all reality. No lie, no lie, no falsehood, no partial truth. Absolute purity in everything he sees. Verse 15 says, and then I looked at his feet and they were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. See, they weren't sandaled feet. They, they weren't dirty Uh, Dusty road feet, they were bronze, polished, and as if they were uh, refined in a furnace. In the temple, in the Old Testament, things that were made of brass and bronze represent judgment. Jesus is coming to walk upon the oppressors of this world. That's what it speaks to. And then he goes on and he says, and then his voice, it started like a trumpet. Now it changes. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Here he is on the ocean, on this rocky island. And when the tide came in, the, the waves would crash over that rocky seashore. And that's, that's all he's got. He says, it's bigger than anything I understand. It, this is all I've got. And his voice, through the ages, God has spoken through angels, men, prophets, priests, kings, the son. And now God will bring them all together and he'll speak like many waters. And then number 16 says, and I'm looking at him, and, and all of a sudden I notice he held seven stars in his right hand. The stars are actually, the Greek word is angeloi, which could be angels, but it's a messengers. And he'll tell us what that is in a few minutes. And then finally, he says this one, and if the rest of that stuff doesn't give you diarrhea, then you get to this one. He says, and then I looked, and he had a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, this is, it's unlike anything I've ever seen or imagined. And he says, he says, this sword's coming out. What is this sword? Well, it says in Hebrews 4.12 exactly what it is. It is the word of God. God. Jesus conquers the world with his word, with his word. God has revealed 66 books of his word. But there's not enough pen and paper to write the words of God because his knowledge and understanding is infinite, past, present, and future. And so he says it's, it's a double-edged sword. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of thoughts and intentions 
of the heart. That's what God's word is. And it's just pouring forth like a sword from his mouth. And then he says this, and he says, and if I had to sum it up, his face shone like the sun, shining in its full strength. Now, that's not the first time he's revealed himself like that. It happens in the Bible at the transfiguration. We, we, see, we see a different Jesus. So when John goes back in verse 9, he says, one like the Son of Man, one like the one who's referred to himself as the Son of Man. He's like him, but different. You see, you'll never see the Jesus of the gospel again. He came for a purpose in humility to save the world. When he comes again, it's to rule and reign and conquer the world and its system. He's like him, but not just like. Now, I got to thinking about it, and so I wrote this just to kind of help, my, help me wrap my mind around it. The Jesus that we see today, the Jesus that we will one day see, the Jesus that John saw is no longer wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. He's no longer being falsely accused. There's nothing held back from his humanity. He will not be judged because he will be the judge. He will not be silent. His voice commands the universe to shine. No longer nails in his hands only the pastors of the churches, the angeloi, the messengers. The words he spoke in the temple as a 12-year-old boy that amazed the religious elite will now cut through the lies of this old broken world. It's an astonishing reminder of who Jesus is. Number two, I want you to know, for us to unlock revelation, we have to have an astonishing reminder of who Jesus really is. Number two, we have to have an appropriate response to who that Jesus really is. He says in verse 7, when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. And we've got a lot of people who say they see Jesus. Just this morning or last night, I saw an article on the, that popped up on my Facebook or online about this boy who had died and was dead for 20 minutes, and he said he saw Jesus, and he starts to describe Jesus. He said, yeah, I saw Jesus, and he had a beard, and, uh, and it was bright. And that's pretty much in a nutshell what he said. He, he didn't see the real Jesus right there. He's like saw the... Jesus' helper, like the Santa Claus helper at Christmas. He didn't see the real McCoy, okay? Because when you see the real Jesus, high and lifted up, resurrected and glorious, your response is, yeah, I saw him. I saw him, and man, he had a beard and it was bright. No, you will find yourself on your face before him. There's people who, there was songs, there's songs been written about when we go to heaven. I just want to see Jesus. I'm, you know, I just want to run up to Jesus. I got some questions for Jesus. Well, there's time for all that, but let me tell you what your appropriate response to Jesus one day will be. When you see him, you will find yourself on your face. Because in all the times that you thought you were so perfect and so clean and so right, doing things so well compared to the holy righteousness of the resurrected Jesus, Bam, we find ourselves on our face. In, in Judges chapter 13, Old Testament, Manoah finds himself on his face. In Matthew 17 in the New Testament, the disciples find themselves on their face at the transfiguration. In Luke chapter 1, Zacharias finds himself on his face. In Luke chapter 5, Peter finds himself on his face in the boat when he says, Whoa, I am an un." 
unclean sinner. In chapter 10 of the Old Testament, Daniel finds himself on his face before God. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah hits the dirt. In Ezekiel, listen to this one, chapter 1, 3, 9, 43, and 44, when Ezekiel sees God, he's on his face. Job chapter 42, on his face. Paul and his companions on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 26, on his face. And so I just want you to know today, that is our appropriate response. It's not, oh, Jesus, me and Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is that Jesus. And we need to put him on his throne in our life. We need to call what it is. Jesus is God, the resurrected Savior of the world. Jesus is God, the forever eternal King of the universe. Jesus is God of my life. That's what we have to call, and that's what we have to claim. Now, so he's on his face. So imagine you would be too, okay? Now, just like we sang about earlier, he is all that. But then listen to how Jesus responds in our fear of the greatness of who he is. But he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the one who lives And I was dead, but now, look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now listen, while we were singing, this this came to me. If Jesus was to show up today in my life, I know where I would be. I would be on my face. I would be so ashamed. And I know he would come and put his hand on me and say, hey, don't be afraid. And when we were singing, I was thinking about what he might say to me. And this is real. I, could, I just know. I feel it in me. He told me while we were sitting. I just felt it. He, he said, hey, Joel, you remember in 1972 when you were a 10-year-old boy and I came and touched your heart and invited you into my kingdom? Yeah. I am the beginning. You know, you really believe that one day I'm coming back to get you, either when you die or as I come back to rapture the church. You really believe that, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. He says, I'm the end. And he said, today, you're between those benchmarks of being saved and spending eternity in the glory of heaven. You're on this day, the Lord's day. I am this day too. And all of a sudden, I was like, man, that's so good. All right? Listen, he wants you to know today he's not some Jesus on a page. He's not just some historical figure that did amazing things. He's God of the universe, and he wants to be your personal God too. Don't be afraid. I am the beginning and the end. Well, the third thing, and this is really vitally important, that I want you to know you must have to navigate through The book of the Revelation is found right here in verse 19, and I call it an accurate roadmap, an accurate roadmap. He says, therefore, write what you saw, what is, and what will be after these things. And the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers, okay, of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands 
are the seven churches. Now, what's the roadmap in this? The book of the Revelation is broken up into three categories. And if you miss this, you'll find confusion throughout the whole book. And as a preacher, when you're in seminary, you take a class called uh, homiletics. And it's designed to help you break down or parse a passage of Scripture and to come up with an outline to kind of help you navigate through it. And and so, just so you know, when I prepare for a message, it takes me somewhere between 12 and 18 hours to to preach a 20-minute message. (laughs) That's a joke. I don't preach 20-minute messages. Anyway, uh, maybe I should prepare less, I'm just saying. So anyway, it takes a long time for me to do that. And, and, And out of it often emerges an outline. Sometimes as soon as you read it, bam, there's the outline. Now, I'm weird. And I'm a, I alliterate, meaning I have to have the first things kind of start with the same letter or sound. And it's not trendy, and it's not cool, so it fits me just fine, okay? Now, 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 in this, he gives us an outline of the whole book right here in the first part of verse 19. He gives us a breakdown, three points for this, if you were going to preach a sermon on Revelation. And it is this, I want you to write what you saw. Tell your neighbor what you saw is chapter 1. That's what we're studying right now. He said, I want you to write what you saw. And he did. We've been reading what he saw. He wrote it. Okay? And it is an image. It is a visual of the resurrected Jesus. And then he says, I want you to write part two of this book, which is what is. We're going to study for the next couple weeks, chapters two and three, which is the dispensation of the church. It's the church age. From the birth of the church until Jesus catches away the church, chapters 2 and 3. Now, let me pause right here. So far, we've already seen the church, seven church, seven church, seven church. We're going to see two chapters all about the church, 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 seven churches. (laughs) That's seven, I know. Okay, I'm missing a finger in that count right there. Okay, seven churches, all right? But then something happens. Between chapter 3 and chapter 4, God says, now, John, I want you to come up here and see what happens next. Chapters 4 through 19 is the tribulation of the church. It takes all of those chapters for God to describe the judgment that comes on this earth and then the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom and the new creation. From chapters 4 all the way to the end, chapter 22, are things which have not happened yet. And they won't happen until chapter 2 and 3, the church age is finished. So chapters 1, the things that you see. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are now. And chapters 4 through 22, the things that will be after. And then he defines the lampstands. He says, the lampstands, those are my churches. And the angels, those are the messengers. And I was reading this and studying this, and, and, and I got to thinking, man, Of all the things that Jesus could have been doing when John turned around, he's standing amongst his church, the bride of Christ. He's standing right in the middle of the thing that he was so passionate about, redeeming, saving, forgiving, making right lost people and bringing them into the thing called the ecclesia, the church. And of all the things he could have been holding in his hand as creator and sustainer of the universe, he's got the pastors in his hand. And we went to a conference this week, as I mentioned earlier, and it set my heart on fire. And 
And I want you to know I can and you can can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. And we can say whatever we want from God's word. We can proclaim truth. We can proclaim the gospel because Jesus is standing among his church holding the pastors in his hand. And so how does this move us? When we have an astonishing reminder of Jesus and when we have an accurate response to Jesus, and when we have a road map to get to Jesus, here's what it looks like. It doesn't look like this. This is what today's church looks like a lot. The problem is it doesn't just look like this from 9 to 10.30 or 10.30 to 12 on Sunday morning. It looks like this 24-7. And I don't believe God wants that out of me or you. I believe God is saying, you need to get a fresh glimpse of the Jesus that you call the Savior of your life. You need to get a fresh look to the place where it breaks your heart and crashes into your soul like the waters of the ocean. And then once you get that, I want you to feel my hand on you saying, you don't have to be afraid. We're going places. And then it's time to rise up and be the church that God has called us to be. So I got a little story. I've shared it before, but it's a perfect picture of what this looks like. Uh, Several years ago, we had a company, and I I would take people, I would entertain people and take them on trips and We took uh, a trip to Destin, Florida. I was taking some customers deep sea fishing. And and a hurricane had just gone through. And so I go down to talk to the captain on a a Thursday night. And I said, hey, are we still going out tomorrow? Because it was bad. And he had a lot of choice words. Yeah, we're going out. Blank, 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 blank. I'm on. Spot on, buddy. Okay. So I called my crew. I said, hey, we're still going out. I went to Walmart to get some Dramamine and. There was no Dramamine. I knew this was bad, and I had never been seasick in my life. And uh, just so you'll know, it's, wor- it's like a stomach virus on crack. That's what, that's what it is. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Here's what happened. We're, we caught our bait, and then we were going out into the ocean from Destin, Florida. And, uh, and one of the guys with us, who's not the brightest bulb on the tree, and apparently neither was I because I agreed Let's play cards. So we're sitting around the table, and we're playing cards. And, all, and the boat's just doing everything. And all of a sudden, the cards started moving around. And in a fraction of a second, woe is me. I'm sick. And they knew it. I knew it. I said, fellas, let me out of this booth. I'm sick. Oh, they started making fun. Oh, yeah. Pass me the Cheetos and the mayonnaise. Yeah, Joel, you want some? I don't want nothing you got, okay? I want healing is what I want. I started throwing up, and before it was over, I didn't think we were going deep sea fishing. Oscar, I thought we were going to Cuba. (laughs) We rode, and we rode, and we rode, and I'm sick as a dog. He blew the horn to come and fish. I go out there, and I'm sitting on the side of the boat. He baited me up, I threw it in. That captain looks down. I'm paying the bill. Hey, get up. You're not going to catch anything sitting on the side. Blank, 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 in case you don't know I'm speaking strongly. And and so I looked up. I threw my rod on the ground. I said, you can cut me up as bait. I'm sick. 
And they're all laughing. All the other guys laughing at Joel. Poor Joel and his suffering. I went in there and I laid in the boat. Honestly, I didn't think it was seasick. I thought I had an aneurysm burst in my stomach. I've never been so sick, and I curled up in the fetal position in the floor of that boat, and I'm praying. You know what I'm praying for? I'm not praying to get well. I'm praying for God to send me a helicopter. <laughs> I, I'm not making it. I promise you, Jesus is my. God just sent. He, that crazy captain ain't going back. I know. I got mustard seed faith. Send me a helicopter. Because I'm bleeding, hemorrhaging on, I ain't going to make it home. I'm serious. And then listen to this. And I'm laying in the floor of the boat. And the words of this old song came to my heart. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I'm laying like a baby in the floor of a boat in my own throw up. Singing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. His wonderful blood. <laughs> hey, you can laugh. I don't even care. Because you know what happened? The HVAC came on in that boat. And the air started blowing through that ductwork. And somewhere bet between the time that fan came on and that air came out that vent, Jesus jumped right in the middle of it. He came right out that vent. And just as quick as it came, it was gone. And I'm laying still in throw up on fetal position. I said, God, are you kidding me? Did you just heal me? He said, go get a ham sandwich. I said, I don't want one. <laughs> I've thrown up ham sandwiches that were three months old in the depths of my being. He said, go get a sandwich and a Diet Coke. I said, okay, I will. I got up, I hang on the rack, I went across there. I made me a sandwich with one arm. I got me a Diet Coke and I stuck it under my arm. And I go out to the door and I swung that door open. I said, hey, bait up my rod, I'm coming to fish. And what I didn't know, every one of those other six men were throwing their guts out. <laughs> and I said, I got the Cheetos and the mayonnaise. <laughs> hey, now listen, I, I started fishing. And fast as I'd throw it in, I'd pull it up. There would be a, a trigger fish, red snapper, and amberjack all on the same line. I'm throwing them in a boat. Give me another rod. We filled up a cooler, and, and, and the first mate came over. He goes, I got a question. I said, what? He said, how did you get well? I said, Jesus just came right down in there and touched me that night. Kendra and our girls, I had their families with us. Kendra and I and our girls and all these other pitiful men, they didn't go, but their families went with us. We went to dinner. Now, I'm just, I share that story. That's a real story that happened in my life. When you understand who Jesus really is, he's not the humble, suffering servant he came the first time. He's the resurrected king of glory now. And he wants to be that in your life every day, every heartbeat. And man, my heart is swollen up with what God wants to do in the life of our church. And there's a whole lot on me. I want our church to rise up and become who it is. Not that the pastor or one of you want. The church that Jesus Christ died and rose again to make it to be. The church that Jesus one day is splitting the sky and coming back to get. I want him to get us. Amen. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And maybe you're here today and, man, you hear that message, but that Jesus is not the Jesus of your life. 
He's not real and personal. Maybe if this was our last day on earth and Jesus came for his church, you wouldn't be part of the church that he takes away. I want you to know it's not because of anything he has not done. I want you to know that Jesus has done all the work to afford and offer you a way, a means, an avenue to come into his kingdom. And it's Jesus, his son. And if you're here today, I want you to know this. The Bible says we're all the same. We're sinners separated from a holy, righteous God. And the Bible says that the wages or the penalty or the payment of one sin is death. But then it goes on, it says, but there's a free gift offered from God, and his name is Jesus. And I am a walking testimony of what God does in a broken life when that broken life surrenders the reality of their sinful condition to the perfection of Jesus the Son. You say, well, how does that work? How do I do that? You simply come to a place where you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know you're perfect. And God, I know you still love me even where I am. But you love me way too much to leave me where I am. God, I really believe, I feel it in my soul that you're speaking to me, that you want me to be a child of yours. So God, I confess who I am as a sinner. I repent of my sins. I change my mind. I want Jesus to come into my life and save something like me and make me new, a brand new creature. God, I don't fully understand it, but I want to say thank you for hearing my prayer, entering my life and saving me on this day in Jesus' name.